Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hopes in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Let's pray once again as we look to the word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, the blessing that this church is to all of us here. Lord, we love our church. It's a gift from you, and we thank you for it. Lord, we thank you also for the many families that we have here. We are gifted with with families of every age and size in the spectrum, Lord, we thank you for these beautiful children that you have given us, for the young people you have given us. Lord, they are such a, such a stewardship and such a treasure. Lord, we pray that this morning through your word, the reminders that we have here, that we would be able to pass on our faith our knowledge into the lives of these young people, these children. Lord, that a new generation of believers may rise up and call you blessed. We love you, Lord, and we thank you again for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Psalm 78 is where we're parking it, particularly the first seven verses. The psalm is a didactic psalm, which means it's a teaching psalm, and it's teaching basically two things. It's a very long psalm, the second longest psalm in the Psalter, after Psalm 119. Psalm 78 has 72 verses in it, and it teaches us two basic things. One is that God is faithful and gracious, and two, that his people often are not, right? But in verses 1 through 7, the teaching is a little bit different, a different didactic. It's teaching the people of Israel, it's encouraging them, exhorting them to actually pass on the faithfulness of God, the truth of the faithfulness of God, the truth of the person of God to their children. And so it equips us to teach our young people, whether little people or older young people, you decide. We're going to glean four principles from this text, verses 1 through 7, that David just read a minute ago. And these are principles that were obviously intended for the people of Israel. But because we are the redeemed of the Lord, right? They are applicable to us as well. And after all, Paul instructs us to bring up our children in the, in the teaching, the instruction and discipline of the Lord. And that's Ephesians 6, 4. And this is part of that teaching that we need to pass on. Well, I just want to get right into the principles because there's four of them we have to cover, we need to cover, and the first two we're going to spend a lot of time on, and then the last two will go rather quickly. 
because they, in one way or another, have already been stated, but I wanted to bring them to your attention. The first principle is this. Be aware that your children are fallen. Be aware that your children are fallen. You're probably thinking, no duh, right? <laughs> or, thank you for the encouragement, Marcella. You must be a lot of fun at parties. <laughs> uh, probably not. I'm quite boring. Somebody said, oh my goodness. My wife said that. She, she knows I wear the lampshade. But uh, we have to understand, guys, that our children do not start life as morally inert. They, they do not start life with a blank slate. We just talked about it in the catechism question, actually. They don't start off as neutral, but rather as fallen, Sinners just like you and I. And that's, that is something we really have to grasp. It has to be embedded in the back of our mind as we teach our children day to day, month to month, year to year. And it's quite a valuable piece of information, actually, if you think about it, because uh, if our children understand that they are fallen, that's actually a good thing, because that's a stepping stone for the gospel, right? Because a person can't reach out for a savior until they know they are perishing. And it's also a beneficial thing for us because if we understand this, we will more likely engage ourselves in the genuine pursuit of their salvation. Very important. And I think that Christian parents can often fail at this fundamental level. Several years ago, there were a series of studies done by several groups, evangelical groups, by the way. The Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest evangelical denomination in the North, North America. Uh, the Barna Group, uh, Research Group, Josh McDowell's Ministry, to name a few, there are others. But one of the startling things they discovered is that there are just an enormous amount of young people raised in professed evangelical homes that walk away from their faith somewhere in their 20s. And the percentages range from 60 plus percent to 90 plus percent. And I don't know how you gauge that, but let's suffice it to say whatever the accurate numbers are, a lot of kids, a lot of young people are walking away from Christianity in their 20s. And that teaches us a lot of things. It teaches us for one, I think that conventional youth ministry is not working. I mean, youth work is great, and it's wonderful, and it's there to come alongside the parents and help to reinforce what's being taught at home. But it's not a youth pastor's job to lead your child to Christ and to disciple them. The discipleship, like the title of the book, belongs to parents. And that, uh, you know, the, the old model of let's just drop off our kids at youth pastors at his office or the youth activity and they'll take care of it is just not working. God didn't mean for it to work. He intended salvation and discipleship to be primarily, first and foremost, a ministry of the home. And it also teaches us, I think, the apostasy that we see. It teaches us that we as parents are not taking the fallenness, the depravity of our own kids seriously enough. We need to. We can't just assume that our kids are good and saved, right? 
And in this psalm, the, the writer of the psalm grabs the proverbial Jewish people by the shoulders and shakes them up and says, listen, Israel, I have a story about us. And that story is that even though God is good and gracious to us, we are a wicked, wayward people. Hear this and be warned. This psalm is 72 verses long. 65 of them deal with this basic principle that we are fallen. Very serious. And he cries out, hear me, because this is so important for the training of your children. Understand that your children are fallen. And so he starts out with his teaching, verses 1 through 3, but he starts in a very interesting and rather enigmatic way. Look at the text with me. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. He says in verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. The term parable in Hebrew, mashal, means a story to make a moral point. It's a story to make a proverbial point. And it often carries the idea of something confounding, something mysterious. I don't know if you knew this, but mashal, mashalim, parables were often intended to hide truth, to obscure truth rather than to illustrate it. When Jesus was on earth, he spoke and he taught in mashalim a lot. He, he taught in parables. And he did so largely as a judgment to Israel, so hearing they would not understand and seeing they would not perceive. And in this psalm, the writer is saying, let me give you a dark saying. Let me give you a conundrum, a real mind bender. And he says, I will utter dark sayings of old. Dark sayings means a riddle or an enigmatic, enigmatic, perplexing question or saying. And what's really interesting is that the perplexity that he's talking about here is not something that can not be known, but it is something that they can know. In fact, these are old sayings, right? He says they've been around for a long time. And then in verse 3, he tells us that these sayings, these mashalim, these parables, are a very familiar story to Israel. He says, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. So what's the big mystery, the big conundrum that everybody knows already? The conundrum is this. The real head-scratcher in Psalm 78 is this. It is the ironic truth of Israel's rebellion in the light of God's goodness and patience. In other words, it's hard to believe how wayward God's people can be in the light of God's unfailing patience and goodness. That's the mystery. That's the problem. And that's human nature, isn't it? And that's Israel's story, by and large. And my friends, in this context of teaching our children, verses 1 through 7, this principle ought to be a warning to us. Because if we think, if we believe that our children are going to be saved just because they were born to us in a Christian home, just because we surround them with the manifold grace of God, just because we take them to church, if you think that, if I think that, be aware. Remember the Israelite, and that's the point here. Remember the Israelite. The nation of Israel 
And by the way, the nation that we're referencing here in Psalm 78 in particular is the, the generation of the Exodus. But the nation of Israel was surrounded by God's unparalleled grace, right? They had unparalleled deliverance from Egypt. No nation has been so dramatically, beautifully, powerfully rescued than, than Israel has. I mean, they were basically a nation of slaves that conquered and plundered the mightiest empire on earth at that time, Egypt, and all they had was pitchforks and rakes. Right? It's a little, like an old Frankenstein movie. I mean, one day they just told the Egyptians, we're leaving now. We know we've been here for 430 years, but today we're leaving. Today. Moses told us that God told him, we're leaving. Thank you very much for everything. We're leaving. We're leaving now. And they left. And before they left, they told the Egyptians, by the way, could you guys just give us all your precious things? Like, you know, gold, silver, cash on hand, <laughs> cryptocurrency, <laughs> everything. No credit cards and no, no fruitcake. It's too heavy and nobody really likes it. <laughs> but please, just as we file by, just, just load us up our beasts, our, our wagons, our carts. And the Egyptians said, sure, bye. What just happened? Don't forget to write, thank you. What just happened? It was unparalleled. It was incredible. Unparalleled deliverance from Egypt. They had, furthermore, God's unparalleled leadership. They had Moses, the humblest man on earth, right? Numbers? And also a man who spoke with God face to face, Coram Deo. He got his sermon straight from the source. They also were surrounded by the miraculous all over the place, every day. They had bread. Delivered every day fresh baked from heaven. I don't know if it was baked. I don't know if they bake up there. I don't know that they have ovens. They probably have a cool way of baking so that you don't feel like you're in Menifee. <laughs> but they had manna every day delivered fresh from heaven. They had water in that arid place springing from a rock. You ever suck on a rock? Not a whole lot of moisture there, right? They had water to satiate their beasts and take care of their familial needs. Every day they had water from a rock. They had clothes that never wore out. Probably wrinkle-free, although I'm just guessing on that one. You know, it was a bad day for uh, dry cleaning businesses in Israel. But they had all of that. They had God's presence, right? They had the cloud by day and what by night? Pillar of fire. I would have loved to have seen that. Can you imagine a stranger coming along? The people of Israel, and it's like, what's with a fire pillar? Go, well, that's the presence of God, my friend. Got it. Pretty amazing. They had the presence of God. They walked through the Red Sea on dry land. Not mostly dry, but all dry. Not like, it's a little damp over here, you might want to keep your ox out of that puddle, because... No, it was dry. They crossed from one side to the other on dry land. 
So they had deliverance, they had leadership, they had miracles, they had God's presence. And yet, in spite of all of that, they failed to trust God. And they failed to honor him. They did not turn from their sins. Man's nature, guys, is rebellious. That's our default, unbelief and rebellion. Now, is Israel's default, and that is our default. We come, as was said, from a long line of rebels, beginning with our first parents. Right? The catechism question today. We come from a long line of rebels. That's our heritage. A baby is a cute, adorable, fun, pudgy rebel. Right? Let me ask you something. And the baby can feel free to interact with me. <laughs> They're the expert after all. But uh, let me ask you something. How many hours of your life have you as a parent or as a grandparent, as an aunt, an uncle, a Christian adult, how many hours of, you, of your life have you spent teaching your children the wrong things to do? Let me quantify that for you. Put up a big fat bagel, a zero on the board. No time. Why? Because the wrong thing to do comes quite naturally, doesn't it? I know, I've, I've, I've excelled at it since I was a baby myself. <laughs> Let me tell you, my poor mother, may she rest in peace, and she is resting in peace with Jesus far away from the trouble that I can bring her heart. But my mother, by the way, I looked this up, I was born on a Sabbath, but boy did I make my mother work. And that was just the first day. There were thousands more just like that and worse. But my mother, when she passed away, she had this head of white woolen hair. I gave that to her. She used to be a brunette. But I, that's, how, that's how good I am at being bad. I can change hair color. I excel at it. I'm a Phi Beta Kappa at it. And apparently my children also have the same superpower. <laughs> but how many times have you had to tell your son, okay son, come over here, Junior, You're, listen to me. This is how you act selfishly. You're not getting this. Okay, I'm gonna be selfish with your mother, I want you to watch it, watch me, and then you go plague your sister with it, okay? Or, come here, honey. Why don't you, for no good or apparent reason, just go up and smack your brother upside the head? Just whack him real good. And while you're at it, take his lollipop, the one with all the dog hair. Go ahead, bite him. That's right. That's how you do it. We have to do no training in bad behavior because all our energies are absorbed in keeping them and diverting them from the path of death and destruction, right? That's our default. I once heard R.C. Sproul make re reference to a statement made by the great reformer Martin Luther in which Martin Luther compared the human race to a bunch of filthy rats. Imagine that. 
a bunch of filthy rats. Your children, and these weren't show rats, Eric. These were vermin. But imagine your children, your beautiful children, being compared to a disease-carrying, flea-bitten rodent. And R.C. Sproul took umbrage with that. He, he said he objected to, to the comparison because he said, quote, while I deeply respect Martin Luther, I would strongly disagree with his assessment of the human race because it is an egregious insult to rats. <laughs> He's right. The rats weren't created in the image of God. We were. And our treachery was so profound and malignant that God had to send his son to save us. You and I are rebels, and to assume otherwise about our children, guys, is potentially deadly. And the psalmist declares to his generation of Jewish brethren that the perplexing mystery to their history, the great riddle of their existence, the conundrum of their existence, is that in spite of God's goodness and benevolent grace that he just poured out of them at every angle, they are still a high-handed, mutinous nation. Be aware that your children are fallen. That's what our fight is. That's our war. We need to be aware of that. You know, Franklin Graham, who's uh, the president of Samaritan's Person, Billy Graham's son, and the president, I believe, of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association as well. Franklin Graham in his 20s was a profligate. He was a, uh, a wayward son. And one day, Billy just took him aside and said, Son, there is a spiritual war raging for your soul. And the outcome will either be death or life. Which will you choose? That's our fight, guys. That's our struggle. Be aware that your children are fallen sinners. Principle number two. Teach them with purposeful determination of the greatness of our God. Teach them with purposeful determination of the greatness of our God. And this whole point is made in verse 4. Look at that. He says, we will not conceal them. That is a biblical knowledge of God and God's ways, what he has done. We will not conceal them, the Bible, from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. Now stop right there for a second. Tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. This is just another way of saying, tell the next generation, your kids and your, their kids' kids, tell them who God is. Tell them who God is. Now let me ask you, do you believe that God is praiseworthy? Do you believe that God is great? Okay, now why? You tell me. Now this is the, the interactive part of our service, Lord. <laughs> This is like the scratch and sniff part, okay? Um, I always wanted to scratch and sniff Bible, especially for the burnt offerings. But anyway. <laughs> God is great. Why? You tell me. Why is God great? He's faithful. That makes him great. And the faithless generation, that's so good. What else? He's tolerant. Another way of saying that, too, is that he's patient. Is he not? He's tolerant and patient with us. What's that? He's merciful. Just. What's that? 
I love of Christ. What else? Long-suffering. Gracious. And we could go on and on, right? We could just sit here and stand here and go on all day long. But just like you just told me, and I'm not your child, tell your children. You know, as you're driving out to Home Depot, for whatever reason, maybe you're just driving there to drive by, but take them with you and, and, and talk about God. Say, you know, I've been thinking, God has been putting this on my heart, this attribute of his, and I wanted to talk to you about it. You know, God is merciful. God is tolerant with us. What do you think about that? Tell your children who God is. This is the psalmist imploring his people to tell their children of the majestic person of God. This is a pleading, it's an imploring by an author of scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to teach our children doctrine and theology. I just said the, the D and T word, okay? Doctrine and theology. The foundation of which is theology proper, the study of God and his attributes. Tell them who God is. Tell them who God is. Now why? Why should we tell them? Tell them often, tell them early, tell them who God is. Why do we tell them who God is? That he is all those things that we just mentioned and more. Why do we tell them this? We tell them so that they might come to know the God of their fathers. So that they might come to know the God of their mom and dad. So that they might come to know the great King of heaven. Do you realize, guys, that it is quite literally impossible to get to know someone without receiving and processing information about them? That's what makes you know them, right? Knowledge. It is impossible to get to know somebody in a deep and abiding way unless you know about them, who they are, and you've processed that information. That's what allowed you to fall in love, those of you who are married, to fall in love with your, with your spouse. You know, ladies, you just, it's like, oh, he likes football. That's not something you find in every guy. <laughs> He's a Rams fan. <gasps> so am I. And he loves pepperoni pizza. <laughs> what are the odds? But look at that, he's, he's good with his dog. He's kind to animals, a righteous man is kind to his animals. And he's very good with children, he loves children. And he talks about Jesus all the time. I like this guy. All of a sudden you felt something in there, for all you knew it was heartburn, but you found out it was the twinkle, the, the genesis of love, right? I hope you never have the experience of somebody walking up to you and saying, well, I'm going to marry that person. And you go, oh really? Why? I don't know. I mean, why not? Well, he's going to go to the big house for 30 years for bank robbery. You might want to postpone your wedding date a little bit. But that would be silly. We can't know people intimately until we know about them. And it's the same thing with the person of God. 
We can't fall in love with God until we know why he is so lovable. Our children can't develop a lasting, loving relationship with the God of heaven unless they know who he is. Do we tell them who he is? You know, life is a journey that begins at home. And I know that sounds like I stole that from a Hallmark card, but I didn't. And Hallmark, if somebody's listening uh, down the road, if you want to borrow, that's fine. <laughs> Unless it makes a lot of money, then I want to cut. But I made it up, and it is. It's true. Life is a journey that begins at home, and that's why God gives us our children in those early formative years, so that we may pour into their mind, their heart, who God is. We need to tell them who God is. Do your children know, for example, that God is holy? Not just holy, but he's thrice holy. He's holy, holy, holy. It's the only attribute of God that's repeated three times in both the Old and New Testament together. It's his most salient attribute. That means he abhors sin. Sin cannot stand in his presence. He hates sin. And as our children grow in the knowledge of the holiness of God, it will reveal to them their own sin and draw them to the cross. Do they know, as someone said, I believe it was Alan, that God is just, that he's, he's character bound, he's a righteous judge, and he's character bound to judge all sin. And nobody, but nobody gets away with anything. You know, our, your children look around this world and they see a lot of injustice. A lot of injustice. I hate it. Makes me want to pull my hair out. But I don't need to fret about it, and your children don't need to fret about it, because they know that if God is just, everybody will answer to God for what they've done. Jesus said every idle word, every slacking word is going to be judged by God. God is just. Do they know that God is righteous? That everything he does is perfectly right and true and good every time. Do they know that he's sovereign? That he has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all? Psalm 103 verse 19. Do they know that God wins because he is sovereign? He wrote the end of the book and we win with him. Do they know that God is infinite, perfect love? That he doesn't ebb and flow in his love. He doesn't wax and wane in his love for us like we often do towards one another. But God's love is always fervent, true, pure, unfluctuating, constant, unchanging. He didn't love you more at the beginning of your relationship with him. And he doesn't love you less when you fail him. His love is always fervent towards you and pure and good and everlasting. Your children know that. Do your children know that he is merciful and, and gracious? That in his mercy, he withholds from us what we deserve. What is that? Wrath, death. He poured that out on Jesus. Redirected that to Jesus. And he, in his grace, gives us what we don't deserve. Forgiveness of sins, love, joy, peace, heaven. Do your children know these things? And do they know that all these attributes, holiness, justice, Righteousness, sovereignty, love, mercy, grace, that they all meet perfectly, triangulate perfectly at the cross of Christ. Do they know who he is? 
And notice also that he tells us first to tell them of the praises of the Lord, tell them who God is, but also he invokes Israel to tell their children of his strength and his wondrous works which he has done. In other words, tell them what he has done which is a logical extension of who he is. Tell them of the mighty works that he has accomplished throughout redemptive history. And the Bible simply erupts with these, right? Tell them of creation, that there was nothing God spoke and everything was. It's pretty amazing. Tell them of the flood and the preservation of Noah's family. That's similar to our salvation. It's an example of our salvation. Tell them of the exodus and the birth of the nation of Israel. Tell them of the wondrous times of Elijah and Elisha and all the prophets. If you're a physics major, what a time. All the laws of physics getting bent all over the place. Tell them of the miraculous birth and advent of Jesus Christ. God Almighty become a man. God Almighty become a baby. Can you imagine that? Tell them of the cross. Tell them of the resurrection. Tell them of the ascension. Tell them of the soon coming of Jesus in great glory and power to judge the earth and also to keep every promise that God has ever made. Tell them who he is and what he has done. There's so much to tell about who God is and what he has done, isn't there? Speak it to them. Speak it to them. Let them know. There's something else I want you to see here that may escape your notice unless we park there for just a second. Look at the beginning of verse 4. At the beginning of verse 4, the psalmist determines that we will not conceal them from our children. We will not conceal God or his deeds from our children. And here's a caveat. No rational or conscientious Jew would ever hold back the knowledge of God and what he has done from their children, right? So what does he mean with, we will not conceal them from their children? He means this. We may not, guys, purposely withhold life-saving truth from our children, but we can, through the neglect of silence, keep it from them, and they can be deprived of the life-giving truths of God. In other words, there's a terrible danger that if the praises of the Lord and the works that he has done, if those things are not embedded in our heart, if they're not occupying our mind, then guess what? They will be absent from our lips. And in that negligent silence, we can keep this critical knowledge away from our children. We cannot. The psalmist resolves to tell the next generation of the person and the work of God rather than to deprive them through Silence. Teach them with purposeful determination of the greatness of our God. And you say, well, Marcelo, I've got real littles at home, little, little people. Can they really interact with the truth? Can they really process biblical information, spiritual information? Let me tell you something. Don't underestimate the ability of little children to process spiritual truth. Especially when they're little, three, four, five years old. They're so malleable and so open. They, they want to believe in God, right? How many three and four-year-old atheists have you met? 
Probably not a whole lot. How many hardened evolutionists have you met that are four and five years old? If you take your kids out for a walk in the park, you will not likely get the question, you know, Dad, that tree, that one right there, how did that tree evolve? But you might get the question, Granddad, Daddy, who made the tree? Because they're so open to God and what he has done. That's why Jesus said, don't hinder the kids from coming to me. He said, let the little children come to me. The disciples wanted to keep the children away. It's like, no, 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 don't you understand who this is? This is the master. This is the, this is the Rebbe. Don't bother the Rebbe. You kids have been eating pomegranates. You're going to get us all dirty, sticky fingers, our tunics. Oh, my, children, no, no, stay away from that. Jesus said, would you stop that? Let them come to me. Says he wanted to lay hands on them and pray for them and interact with these little ones. Don't underestimate the ability of little children to process biblical truth. Teach them early. Tell them early who he is and what he has done. Tell them often. You say, well, I've got just the opposite issue at home. I'm the father, I'm the mother of, of teens, older children. And everybody knows that older children never listen to their parents. Because parents are stupid. Listen, we're faced with that message every day. If you turn on the TV, or if you go to a movie, if you open the paper, if you open your eyes. It's there all the time. Parents are not to interact with their children. They're there as goods dispensers. They're like vending machines, only they live and breathe, which is kind of creepy. You know, just provide and shut up, mom and dad. That, that's basically the, the worldly wisdom that we get. That is a lie, guys. That is a lie. God has wired moms and dads and children of all ages to connect, to interact, to live together, to enjoy life together, to share it together. He has made us to be able to connect our children. That's the hard wiring. One of the, the things I uh, make reference to in, in the book is a study that was done in Notre Dame by a secular sociologist. He carries no brief for Christianity. He's just uh, an academian. And uh, he and his research group interviewed thousands of kids from every background. They wanted to find out about spiritual development in teens. They, they wrote a book, Choosing My Religion. Again, not, not a Christian-based book, just a science book, really. And one of the, the key data points that they discovered is that the two people most influential in the lives of teens when it comes to spiritual things, the people that the kids listen to, are mom and dad. And they interviewed kids from religious homes, irreligious homes. They, they interviewed Jewish kids, Christian kids, kids from every brand and kind of religion. And that just reveals, at the human level, the hard wiring that God has put in them, in us. We are meant to interact. So, for you parents of older children, don't underestimate the power of parental instruction. And do you realize that in the Bible, it never addresses the discipleship of children apart from parents or grandparents?
ever. That doesn't mean that youth ministry is bad or not good, but youth ministry is there to come alongside parents to reinforce what's going on at home and what's being taught at home. They're not there to take over or to replace. We have Ben and Miyuki here who are doing such an amazing job just pouring the word into those kids. But kids were meant to learn and to interact spiritually with their parents. Okay, that's the second principle. Teach them with purposeful determination of the greatness of our God. When they're little, when they're in between, when they're older, teach them day in, day out. That's Deuteronomy 6, right? Take this word that is on your heart, let it be on your lips, and teach it to them when you rise up, when you lie down, when, you walk, when you're in your house, when you get up and walk by the way, all the time in every way. Teach them. Number three, in training your children, these two will go real fast. What time are we done? Okay, I get no answer. That means I just keep going. You're telling me like Joe Montana and Jerry Rice, go long. No, I wouldn't do it. We're almost done. In training your children, teach them the Bible. Principle number three. In training your children, teach them the Bible. And I think that's fairly obvious, and yet it bears repeating because we need to hear it and because we need to hear it. <laughs> Just made a joke. <laughs> Actually, it's also because it's in Psalm 78, verse 5. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. Both testimony and law are synonyms for the word of God in Israel. Which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. Teach them what? The testimony and the law of God, the Bible. Teach them the Bible. Guys, this is the great source book from where we get our knowledge of who God is and what he has done, right? This is where we get the plumb line by which we determine what comes into our home and what stays out of our home. This is the spiritual spring of truth from which we draw to mentor and disciple our children. And there's so much to be said about this, but we just don't have the time. But if I could encourage you to do one thing in regard to this principle, it would be this. Read the Bible to your kids. Just read it to your littles, to your older kids, to your teens. Read them the Bible. These are powerful words of life. Now I've given you a couple of don't underestimate points, right? Don't underestimate the ability of little people to process biblical truth, spiritual truth. Don't underestimate the power of parental instruction. Here's a third one. Don't underestimate the power of the word to transform your life and their life. Don't underestimate it. Reminds me of the story of A.W. Pink, one of my favorite devotional theologians. He was uh, British, as all good theologians must surely be, so that they can mumble down to us and say, hello, little ones, colonials. Aha. It's uh, too bad we can't tax them anymore. <laughs> Taxes. They're doing a jolly good job of it themselves, aren't they? Yes. I'm going to stop right there because I'm, uh, I'm going to get the hook and crook here pretty quick. No, but A.W. Pink was a young man who was raised in a Christian home by Christian parents, obviously. 
who read them the Bible, who told them the gospel, who told them the Bible stories faithfully. He knew the Bible. He was a very, very bright kid, very bright man. But at the age of 19 or 20, right about there, he just rejected Christianity. He even rejected his parents. He didn't want to talk to them anymore. He wanted to leave home. And he got involved with the spiritualists of all people. The spiritualists are a group of people that believe they can commune with the dead, they can talk with the dead, they can have seances and things like that. You've heard of that. And because A.W. was a man of words and great intellect, he ascended very quickly in that group. And he was just about to be shipped off to India to study under the main guru of these people. And his parents, as you can imagine, were just heartsick, just heartbroken. And they, his son wouldn't dialogue with him. He wouldn't enter into conversation with him. One day, Pink's dad stayed up waiting for him while he was away at a spiritualist meeting. And he was just pouring out his heart to God and saying, Lord, what do I say to my son? He didn't have anything left to say. And when the son came into the door, it said the scripture that the Holy Spirit put on his heart was this. He said, son, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That's Proverbs 14:12. A.W. Pink didn't respond, didn't say anything, just bounded up the stairs, closed the door to his suite and locked it. His parents didn't see him for two days. And when he came down, he was a different man. He said, Mom, Dad, I have committed my life to Jesus Christ. And he said when he was in his room alone for those 48 hours, the, he couldn't get that verse that his dad recited to him out of his mind. He tried hot baths, he tried exercising, he tried everything, nothing could... could rip it out, expunge it. In fact, what started happening is because he grew up with the Bible and knew the Bible, the Holy Spirit started saying, oh yeah, deal with this one. And he was doing a demolition job inside A.W. Pink only to make a new creature. And the scripture literally transformed his life in those days after a lifetime of pouring into him. Guys, teach him the Bible. It can transform them and lead them to salvation, and it can equip them for life and ministry. And that's exactly what Paul told Timothy, right? Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, that from childhood, Timothy, you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to lead you, give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. And then in chapter 3, verses 15, 16, and 17, Paul says they can now equip you for life and ministry. The scripture is that imperishable seed that saves, Peter tells us. 1 Peter 1.23. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul tells us that the word of God in us performs its work in you who believe. Scripture can lead us to salvation, and it can equip us for life and ministry. And if that's true about the word of God, then by all means, at every turn to your children, read the scripture to them. Read it to them. And let me just close with the final point. We'll pretty much just mention it and, and move on. But let me just give you the primary reason why we as parents and Christian adults and grandparents and future parents are committed to teaching the Word of God to our children. 
the primary reason we do this as Christians, adults, is so that our children may trust in God for salvation and walk in faithfulness with him. That's it. That's the supreme goal. So let me just state it in a principle. Teach them with the goal of their salvation and their subsequent faithfulness to God clearly in mind. Let that be the north star of why you do what you do as you parent. Teach them with the goal of their salvation and their subsequent faithfulness to God clearly in mind. Judge everything by that plumb line. You want to bring something into their life? Does it help lead them to salvation and be faithful to God, or will it detract from that? That's the principle. And it's here in Psalm 78, verse 7. And let me just back up to verse 5 for context. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the generation and children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. Now why? Why do we do this teaching? Here's verse 7. The purpose starts with a purpose clause. That... They should put their confidence in God so that they may embrace God in salvation and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Live a life of faithfulness to the Lord. Be aware that your children are fallen, and so teach them with purposeful determination of the greatness of our God. In training your children, teach them the Bible through that greatest scripture and teach them with the goal of their salvation and their subsequent faithfulness to God clearly in mind. As I said, let that be your North Star. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clear teaching of your word, for how practical it is to equip us for life and ministry. Again, we thank you that we are in a church with so many young families and so many children. Lord, we thank you for this treasure, and we pray that by your grace you would allow us to see many of them embracing Jesus as Savior and going out from here to the rest of the world to preach this message of life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.